Well, I hope that's true. Your word I will never neglect. And uh, it's a struggle, isn't it? Keep the word of God faithful uh, in front of us. And uh, to give ourselves to the ministry of the word. And to be faithful in hearing it and all these things. But may God help us to do that. Let's uh, turn now to uh, Romans uh, chapter 6, verse... And we're going to read from 9 through to 23. And uh, may God help us as we um, think together about what it means to be a Christian. Let's uh, pray briefly before we read. Father, we thank you for uh, this... uh, Uh, the scripture in front of us, and we thank you for the repository of truth, and uh, thank you for the exhortation uh, to make it front and center of our lives, and to meditate on it, and to be faithful with it. We pray, therefore, that as we come to study your word uh, just now, that you would uh, help us to focus, keep um, from distraction, and uh, Lord, would you do great work in us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's uh, let's read. Uh, we're we're in Romans six last time. Let's continue um, moving on a little bit. A bit of overlap from last week's reading, but verse nine, Romans six, verse nine. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members as, uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, uh, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. But what fruits were you getting at the time of of, of the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, we're uh, uh, on these Sunday mornings. We're thinking about what it's what happens to somebody when they become a Christian, and uh, both in terms of what uh, 
happen, happens in the new Christian and what happens for the Christian um, outside of us. And all of those things, that collection of things, is, is, are described as uh, the benefits of Christ that come through Christ in our salvation. So when you get saved, there are many benefits that come as a result uh, through Christ. And last week we began to look at uh, the important question of our sanctification. And um, uh, it's not a common word today, as we, we noted, uh, but it might suggest to some of us that, as it might suggest to some of us, sanctification is about holiness of life. It's about living in a new way and in accordance with uh, the commands of God uh, in Christ-likeness uh, and so on. And the goal of sanctification is the elimination of sin from our lives. Um, or to put it another way, it is about the transformation of our lives into the likeness of Jesus Christ, into his character, to become like him, not physically, uh, but spiritually, becoming like him uh, in the way that we live. And for that to happen, uh, there needs to be a fundamental change in our relationship to sin. And that's what we began to think about last week. Uh, what some have called the doctrine of definitive sanctification. And definitive sanctification is that step that happens at the point of spirit-worked faith, uh, just like justification and adoption comes at the point of faith, so definitive sanctification comes at the point of faith where a, a definitive break in the power of sin is effected by the Lord Jesus Christ. Where what or who you serve in life changes. Previously, you were, before you were a Christian, you were a slave to sin. And Paul mentions that several times. If you look at verse 17, you'll see this. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. Or verse, uh, uh, verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitation. Because once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to sin. Uh, or verse 20. Uh, when you are slaves to sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. This idea of being free from sin, uh, of being slaves to sin, was a, a feature of your life before you became a Christian. You are enslaved to sin. But now Paul says, you have been set free from sin. He says that in verses 7, 18, and 22. You have been set free from sin. Sin is a definitive break that has happened to you. And notice what he is saying here. He is not saying that you should be free of sin as you need to do something about it. He's not saying that. He's saying something's already happened to you. You have been set free from sin. Something has actually happened to you that is is irreversible. That your relationship to sin has fundamentally changed. 
Once you were ruled by that sin, but now you are under the rule of sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ as a Christian. And the key application for that is in verse 11. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It begins with our thinking. And that's often the step that people find most difficult. But we need to hear what Paul is saying to us. You have been set free from sin, therefore we need to think that way. And think of ourselves in a new way. If we're Christian, though we still sin, the truth is sin does not rule us and determine our destiny. Jesus Christ does. Now that's a, that's a doctrine that in my experience is woefully underappreciated in, amongst Christians. Uh, one evidence of that is, uh, just immediate over the last week or so, is the number of people who have spoken to me about how helpful they found last week's sermon. Um, it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> and there's only a handful of people. But, uh, but when, when a few people do do it, it's noticeable. And it's interesting to me that this doctrine seems to come like almost something new to people. It's just here. It's here. You just need to read it. But we don't pay much attention. Sometimes don't pay the attention that we need to. And it comes like a, like a new revelation almost to some people about how helpful that is. And I've actually found that over the years um, as I've spoken to people who wrestle with besetting sins in their lives that this teaching comes to them like a breath of fresh air. I've never heard, I remember one young, young man saying to me, I've never heard that before. Even though they'd read, the book, read Romans. Now why does it come like a, a breath of fresh air to people? Because the sin that is present in you and it's still there seeks to make you think that it's still in charge of you. And you're constantly in this battle and you're, it's, you know, wartime is confusing. Your battlefields are confusing. Unless you're absolutely clear about what your objective is and what, what the parameters are. You can be totally confused. And as Christians, we get totally confused about the presence of sin in our lives. We begin to think that it actually rules, when actually the the opposite is true. We're not ruled by our sin. We're ruled by Jesus Christ. And we need to begin to believe that and to receive it. So if you missed that sermon last week, uh, feel free to go to the website and listen to it and catch up. Maybe you want to listen to it again. Who knows? I'm not a great fan of online sermons, but you know sometimes it's helpful. Well, today I want to I want to move on from that initial step of sanctification, that definitive break, to consider what happens next. And what we're going to think about is that continuing work of God in you that some people call progressive sanctification. That sanctification progresses; it makes progress in your life. And it's not disconnected from definitive sanctification. Both are actually aspects of the same thing, sanctification. But we're thinking about what happens to the Christian as a result of that definitive break 
with sin? What happens now? And the first thing to think about this morning, and I've got three things. The first thing is, this new freedom that we have from sin has implications for life. This new freedom we have from sin has implications for life. Uh, if you look at, look at verses 10 and 11, and uh, you'll notice that Paul begins to speak about Jesus first. Jesus died and has risen from the dead. So what now? What now for us? Uh, well, what, what now for him? He lives to God. So everything about the risen Jesus' life is given over to the glory of his Father. His life in his bodily existence in glory, because he ascended to heaven bodily, his heavenly life continues to live for God and to God and for his glory. That's the Son of God acting and living in this particular way. And then in verse... So that's about Jesus, verse 10. So verse 11, then he says, So you also... You Christians also, like Jesus, you are truly alive. Or to put it away now, another way, you are truly living. And so now your life continues from this point as new and different. You are new and different. And that makes total sense, doesn't it? Um, Previously, you were a slave to sin. You did whatever your passions told you to do. Um, That's just what living to sin is. You live according to your passions, uh, which are fallen and corrupt and uh, twisted and all sorts of things. And you end up doing things you like, but you're actually enslaved to it. You're not doing what's right, always. And... You fall short of the glory of God because of all of that. And the thing to remember is that that mastery over you that sin had was not theoretical. It was not theoretical. It was practical. It affected everything about your life. It affected how you thought about anything. It affected what you set your affections on, what you loved Uh, what you disliked. It affected what you did with your time and resources. It determined what your priorities were in life, the things you were going to do and not do. It was all according to your passions. Your thinking, your loving, uh, your doing. All according to your passions. In other words, your whole conscious energy in life was given over to serving this master. You may not have been able to identify this master. You may believe that you don't have a master. But the simple fact is, sin was ruling you and controlling you. You are, And the reason you didn't see it is because you're blind. In that condition, you're blind to your condition. You can't see. You can't hear properly. Your heart is like stone. But that was the practical reality of your situation before you were a Christian. And of course the world around you, you know, your family, your friends, your school teachers, your colleagues, the media that you watch, uh, they tell you that it's okay to live like this. They're always affirming that you can live like this. 
under this master. But now, you are free from the sin that once ruled you. And in verse 10, just, so verse 10, just as Christ died to sin on the cross, and now he lives to God through his resurrection, so, he says, this is now true of you too. Now your life is in the state of true freedom to be lived in a new way. It shall be lived to God and be like Jesus. That is your impulse in life. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, if you've heard the call of God, if you've been given faith and repentance, this is now your impulse in life. To live to God, to live by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you live in his power and everything about you is now changed your mind and how you think is different what you set your affections on is totally different what you actually do is is changed you get new priorities in life now I think the danger at this point for, for you and I as we read this is to think that This idea of freedom is an entirely theoretical thing. As though it's out there somewhere, like a a certificate I've got in my drawer that might come in useful one day, or a ticket to something that I'm going to use one day. But it doesn't actually change anything about you. And, And therefore, in a sense, it's a theoretical idea, this freedom. And instead, some people have this idea that um, I have this new theoretical set of detached benefits, like a certificate in a drawer, but they believe that they're left to themselves to live for God. And then they see the commands of God in the Bible, as, and they think they are powerless to actually do them and to live differently. But that's a lie. It's a lie of the devil. It's a deception into which you have fallen, if you think that. The condition of being sanctified and set free is not theoretical for you. It is now about your life. Your life is different. It radically changes how practically you live. And your life must be and will be different. And we'll see why in a minute. So this freedom then means life lived in a new way. Which brings us on to the second point. This new life is God-given. This new life is God-given. Now it may seem obvious, we've, we've covered it before. But it has important implications for how sanctification progresses in the Christian life. That it's God-given. It's actually a God-worked process. If you think back to... We were thinking about regeneration or new birth or new creation. That this life comes from God. And we saw how this looked... How this... When we, when we looked at John's Gospel, you remember John chapter 1, verse 13, it says, uh, Children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So God brings about the birth, uh, the new birth of people. Or John 3, 8, 3, verse 8, John speaks of everyone who is 
born of the Spirit. Uh, Jesus speaks of everyone who's born of the Spirit in John. And God the Spirit brings life, you see. Uh, We've covered that already, this regeneration idea. Now this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who brings this life, now dwells in the believer. And so, but this Spirit of God is not a passive passenger that you're carrying around with you. The Holy Spirit is continually active. And what is he doing? Let me list some verses about what he's doing in your life. Firstly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. And Paul finishes his letter to Thessalonians with a, a prayer Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May he sanctify you completely. That's the ongoing prayer of the Christian. It's the expectation of the Christian. That God will continue to do this work of sanctifying of making you holy and righteous, blameless in your life. That God will do it. And the goal of all of that is that you might be made fitting for heaven, for eternal life. Ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. So that's one verse. Here's another verse, a couple of verses. Uh, 2 Corinthians three, seventeen and 18. And Paul says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit is doing a work of transformation. The Spirit is the agent of change within us. uh, And we are being transformed from this one degree of glory to another. Becoming more and more like Jesus. And just in case you're wondering where he says the Lord is the Spirit and the Spirit of the Lord. Well, of course, the the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit have this common purpose. The the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father send the Holy Spirit and the Spirit does this work. He is the Spirit of Christ doing this work in you. Now how does that happen? How does that transformation happen? So thinking about 2 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, 17, 18. Does it happen without us knowing about it? Do we just carry the Holy Spirit around with us in a sense and, and something happen, you know, amazingly happens to us without us actually knowing anything about it? Well, no, of course not. There is something you need to be doing which is part of the Spirit's work in you. We need to behold the glory of God. Now, how do we do that? By looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, looking into his face. And where do we do that? We do that by meditation on his word. From the scriptures. The scripture, as it were, placards for us the Lord Jesus Christ. It constantly tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. It constantly lifts him up. And so we can gather 
and avail ourselves and put ourselves under the ministry of the word of God and we can then meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ transforms us. What do you think you're doing on a Sunday morning? You think you're listening to some teaching? No, you're here to behold the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and be changed. That's why I'm so gutted that so many of you don't come in the evening because you don't seem to be that bothered about it. We need to behold the Lord Jesus Christ in his word as he is lifted up to us. That's how we're transformed. That's why the, we talk about the word of God as the means of grace. That God, God's grace comes to you and transforms you. And so as the days and the weeks and the years go by, our lives are transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. An amazing thing. Here's another verse, last one. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, the practical outworking of this work of the Holy Spirit is that you and I, if we're Christian, will see change in our lives. Uh, Notice that it's us doing it. The Spirit's doing it, but we're doing it. We, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you, Christians, put to death the deeds of the body. And that means that we don't do it alone. The Holy Spirit is at work in us. But it involves our conscious thinking and applying what we know from the Word to put to death the deeds of the body. We're making conscious decisions about what we will do and what we won't do, how we will think and what we're not going to think, what we're going to love and what we're not going to love. We're deciding in the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. This is the the work, the amazing work that God is working out in our lives because he indwells you as a Christian. So this new life given by God gives rise to, ch- rise to changes in your life and this will happen because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Well, finally, let's think about the fruit of sanctification. And uh, Paul mentions the fruit of sanct- in sanctification in verse 22. Now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves to God. The fruits that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. One of the things that we've got to get clear in our minds, and uh, I'm sure some of you know this, but um, when we think about the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ... We need to recognize that our salvation has three tenses. There is a past tense to our salvation. So, for example, Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. You have been saved. So he's talking about People have become believers and they're assured that they're already saved. You have been saved. Something momentous has happened at the point of faith. And uh, we've seen that in earlier 
sermons in this series. There's also, so there's a past tense, there's also a future tense. Um, For example, in Romans 5.10, Paul says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, uh, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There's a future sense of being saved. We shall be saved. And I think he's thinking there about entering into the presence of God finally. There's a future sense of it. So there's a past tense, there's a future tense, but there's also a present tense of being saved. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see the present tense? We are being, if we're Christians today, we are being saved. It's something that's going on. Or 1 Corinthians 15.1 and 2, uh, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. The thing that's of first importance, that's by which you are being saved. So it's a present, ongoing, there's a present, ongoing process, an aspect of salvation that's happening now. And that aspect that's happening now is what we're talking about, progressive sanctification, being made in the likeness of Christ. And it proceeds as a process that leads to that ultimate goal, which is eternal life, he says in verse 22. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The the end or purpose or goal, eternal life. And so, and I need to emphasize again that this ongoing process is not somehow a subconscious process as though we don't know anything about it it's just happening in the background of our lives for the simple reason that it's all about our life every aspect of our life it's involved in our thinking and our loving and our doing so this, uh, this is this is the work that God is going to involve us in and we see that in other parts of Scripture. So, excuse me if I'm jumping around in different verses. But there's a, some, of, some people get very puzzled by Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Because he gives this command. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, oh, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like you're doing work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying, uh, earn your salvation. But he is saying there's work to be done as a person who's being saved. Work it out. But then he says, in the same sentence, verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, on the one hand, you're to work, but God is at work in you. It's like two things together. And... What we need to get in our heads is it's not a partnership. God does a bit and we do a bit and somehow together we mingle it together and somehow we we get there. It's not like that at all. You see, it's your obedience is all about you. It's all you. You are consciously obeying. You're to do that. To be fully involved in it. 
And yet, at the same time, 100% of God is at work in you to do this great work in you. It's a great, it's a great paradox, isn't it? You know, God's sovereign power, my free will. <laughs> but that's what we see. God is in gathering us up into himself and saying, come obey my word. But he also gives the power to do it. He gives the power to do it. And it is ultimately God's work. It's all of God and it involves all of us in all of our lives. And because this, of this work of God is in us, in our conscious living for him, it's, it's for that reason that Paul can give commands. Um, there's a terrible tendency for people who believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, which is true, to then think, well, I don't have to pay attention to the commands of God because somehow God's going to do everything anyway. Such a cartoon view of the Bible. That if you're a new person in Christ, you know that God is at work in you. And you know that when God gives a command to you, you you can respond. You can do what he says. God never makes a command without giving the power to do it. And that's true of you and of me as Christians. So Christians now are not slaves to sin any longer, but we're slaves to God. Slaves to God, doing his will, obeying his commandments, leading to the fruits that, uh, of sanctification. Let me just finish with a, f- a few implications, three, three implications. Firstly, fruit doesn't come instantly. Um, if you've got a garden with fruit trees in it, you'll know that at the beginning of the year, there's a lot of work done, to be done to tend the ground and to prune the tree. And, and then you begin to, you have to wait. And then the fruit comes. And eventually the fruit comes. It's the same in the Christian life. You're a new Christian and all the potentiality of, for fruits of sanctification is in your life by the grace of God. It's all there by the grace of God. And yet, it takes time to emerge. So don't be discouraged when you fall into sin. Don't be discouraged. Your sin doesn't rule you. Jesus does. And he will bring the fruit in your life. So just keep looking to him. Keep looking to him. Secondly, it does mean that there's a struggle in the Christian life. Because being, becoming a Christian is not a passive theoretical thing. As we've said, if you're truly free and have been truly born again, you're born into a battle. Uh, Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposing, opposed to each other. That's the, the life that you, you're now entering into. Battle between flesh and the spirit in your, within you. But don't be discouraged. That's normal. Expect that struggle. And when you expect something, you're better prepared to meet it. And the third thing is, lastly, the transformation of your life will come. The transformation of your life will come. And it is beautiful. It's beautiful to behold. Because you're being made more and more like Jesus Christ. And he is beautiful. 
I've mentioned this before, but I've, I've met several people in my life who, at the end of their life, and after a life of looking to Jesus, paying attention to him, there's something about them that is amazingly beautiful. You know, their body may be wasting away. They're limited in so many ways. And yet, in terms of their character, there's a wonderful beauty about them. You know, that's my prayer for all of us here today. As we grow older together, that beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ will emerge more and more in our lives individually. Brothers and sisters, this... Your life now is about this transformation. Let's look to Jesus Christ for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful continuing work of salvation in our lives to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And how we thank you for it, that it pleases us when we see others who are Christ-like. And Lord, we long to be Christ-like ourselves. We pray, Father, that you work this great work in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.